The story you're about to hear was written by Scottish author Andrew Murray Scott. In Ghosts, a young man drifts into and out of a casual romance in the heat of Madrid, where everyone seems washed out or unnaturally pale in the strong, dazzling sunlight. Ghosts by Andrew Murray Scott In those days I was so alive I had no cause to doubt the solidity of things, even though one's very existence is simply an assumption made by others. Well, I had been drifting around and ended up after months of aimless hitchhiking in Madrid, in a third-floor room in a gloomy building near the Playa Mayor, the cheapest I could find. The water closet on the ground floor was shared by all the tenants. My window vent had no glass, opened inwards to a dismal air shaft. On the opposite side of this shaft, an ancient male person with a hacking cough sat naked in the dark facing me, expressionlessly picking and picking at the tattered grey skin of his chest. He was there when I awoke about five, and when I went to bed about ten, but I had a bed, a chair, a string looped between two nails on opposing walls to dry my jeans and t-shirt, and at least the room was cool. I breakfasted early in a small cerveserie, off the square if I timed it right, just as some office workers were leaving. They usually left some pieces of bread, perhaps even half a tortilla. In this way, for the price of a coffee, I had breakfast. There is a freshness at that time of the morning, a smell of new water, an antiseptic moistness from the bowels of the earth, which I had grown to love. Then I breezed along the Puerta del Sol, between tall, elegant buildings, musing on everything and nothing, found a seat on the dust-covered base of the equestrian statue, some Habsburg monarch, I can't recall which, right in the centre of the Playa Mayor, and began to eat some oranges I'd scrounged. Workmen were drenching the dusty paving, working methodically among the blanched-out blobs of tourists. Shadows in the square festered thickly. Pigeons roosted to silence in the shelter of arched gateways. The heat was building up. I leaned against a warm stone. Do you mind? Someone spoke. I looked around. My orange peel had fallen into the palette of an artist next to me, a girl whose delicate, insubstantial features concentrated into a tenuous frown. Ah, I didn't see you there. My first impression was of blonde white hair under a large straw hat. I heard the angry scratch of pencil on cartridge paper. Fancy an orange? No, thanks. Please yourself. I began to nod off. Then she was shaking me awake. The police, she said urgently. They don't like you to sleep. A friend of mine got a kick in the stomach for falling asleep in public. Too damn many police. The policiae, the guardia civil, the militaire. Which are the ones with the funny hats and the guns? The guardia civil. They think they're the dog's bollocks. I could see her more fully now. Looked at her drawing. That's pretty good. You're a professional. Art student. Ach, it's rubbish. English? From Edinburgh originally, I'm at the Slade. Yeah? Sure you won't have an orange? They do look juicy. Go on. Freshest in the city. Plucked on myself. She laughed abruptly. What do you do? Me? Free and easy, you know. Lucky old you. 
I'm on holiday with my parents, the dreaded fossils. Her name was Diana, she told me later, as we strolled along the gritty hot streets, looking up at the imperialist architecture. I had a feeling I'd heard her double-barreled surname before, or seen it on some painting somewhere. My dad. He's an artist. We live in the Norfolk Broads. He likes the light there. It's been nice meeting you. Thanks for the orange. I met her as arranged next day at the Prado. She wore faded jeans and a chambray shirt tied loosely at the waist and, of course, the floppy straw hat. Her freckles darkened in the sunshine. I had only a vague idea what her figure was like as I couldn't take my eyes off her bleached, smiling face. Skin looks ephemeral in strong sunlight, as if it's not there at all, a visual trick, unreality trapped in a mould of blood cobweb. The ground floor of the Prado is devoted to large canvases of Spanish painters, particularly Velazquez and Tintoretto, Posi Ribera, Chichano Vecellio and others. Some of the Velazquez paintings are enormous, quite overpowering, and they are all around the ground floor in the best vantage points, where no one can fail to be assailed by them. They studied Tintoretto's portrait of Archbishop Pedro. Beautiful. Absolutely brill, she cooed. Compassionate, although I usually find religious themes rather... Melodramatic? Exactly, my dear. Best things here are the Goya etchings. You've been here. I thought you said... Ah, there's too much to see in one day. You sly old boots. Impulsively, she linked her arm through mine. After a minute or two, I disengaged mine and put it around her bare waist. Our faces were close together. I could feel the blood journeying its heat around her thin body. We spent a lot of time examining Goya's etchings sequence, Désastre de Guerre, some of the most cruel and depraved scenes in the history of art. An American girl was giggling over some of the anatomical details. This guy's sure having a bad time. How'd you get to Cyprus? Get a boat from somewheres? Asked the heavy-set youth in white shorts and red sport shirt, casting an occasional bored glance at the pictures. The bearded man popped chewing gum. I took the trip last year with some students. You wanna go? Kinda neat place to see. Hey boys, wanna go eat? The girl asked, taking his arm. There's four Burger Kings in the grid. Diana steered me into the cafeteria. It's funny, I've only just met you and I feel I've known you for ages. Did we, like, meet in a previous life? Hey, sadly, I'm going back to England in three days. Maybe we could meet up in London. But why don't you come back too? We could travel together and stay in London with my wicked uncle in Elephanton Castle. What would your parents have to say about that, I wonder? Oh, they're off to Brittany with the Cabezas, a family we know. I'm going back by coach, direct to London, 28 hours, she made a wry face. I watched those freckles clustering together, and my face moved down across two feet of empty space to her, and we kissed. The three days passed quickly. The fossils turned out to be affable and not at all snobbish. Diana's mother said, I just didn't like the idea of my daughter travelling all that distance alone. She's such a free spirit. You'll look after her, won't you? I'll do my best. But my problem was the fare. Scraping together all my money and selling my watch and ring at the Rastro market left me 100 pesetas short. I had nothing else to sell except my body and my soul, and frankly there wasn't much left of value in either. 
But this lack of money was just the kind of problem I could not tell anyone, least of all Diana, without serious loss of face. On the last night, she said, I'll see you at the terminus tomorrow at nine. You will be there, won't you? Won't you? I'll be there. I stood for a moment or two, watching the lights go out in the hall, stairway, her bedroom. A hundred measly pesetas. I could not ask her for the money. I sat down and counted out my money again, but it still came to just 6,025 pesetas. The smart set would be in the clubs and discos. I could not go to bed until I'd got hold of a hundred pesetas. A hundred pesetas, half the cost of my miserable room for a single night. The price of a meal, that was the worst of it, one measly hundred. I got positive. Checked telephone kiosks for coins lying around. Methodically searched the pavements. Found myself in the Puerto del Sol, looking up at the magnificent clock of the central post office. 11.30pm. The streets were deserted. I suppose I was amazed at just how much I seemed to care. It really seemed to matter that nothing had for a long time. At midnight, I heard the tolling of church bells. Past the Royal Academy and the church and the picture postcard fountain whose sculpted figures were writhing passionately in the street light. I walked around it twice. Sibelis, goddess of fertility, Moonlight striped the stagnant water around the statue. Of course, it was a fortune fountain. I climbed into the water, cold and deep, deeper than I expected, came up above my knees. I trailed my hands along the bottom, dredging for coins which superstitious fools had tossed, making, no doubt, some foolish wish or other. I glimpsed the white face of an old woman hurrying past. She saw me crouching, stopped, Mouth agape, crossed herself. Luckily there were no policemen in sight, nor Juardia Thaville. By one of those remarkable coincidences, the coins added up to 100 pesetas, with just enough extra for a glass of milk. Next morning, the naked old man was not at his post. I stood rubbing my eyes for a moment or two to see if he would reappear, though I had never encountered him on the stair. There were no office workers in the calf. Too bad but the rigours of a 28-hour coach trip across Spain and France were of small consequence when the trip was to be undertaken with Diana, followed by some days and nights clearly promised in her uncle's flat in London. This was the start of something. After hours of undulating Spanish countryside, we fell into a doze and woke in darkness. We were somewhere near Pamplona, somewhere in the Pyrenees, then somewhere near Biarritz, the coach was hot and stifling. I awoke again as we entered Bordeaux. 3.15am. Everyone alive in the world was asleep. Diana stirred fitfully against me. I did not wake her as I eased out of my seat and meandered over to the station complex, looking for the toilet, seeing myself almost reflected in the smoked glass. When I came back, the coach was gone. Gone. A rather little word to carry the entire weight of my despair. Oh yes, I ran frantically in all directions, spent half an hour of panic and desperation and self-loathing in the Saturday morning streets mocked by silent statues, ignored by pigeons. Finally, I sat down and wept, making the world seem less substantial with my tears. I could smell Diana's perfume, feel the imprint of her lips pressing mine. 
but she was gone, utterly. I did not have her address in London. More to the point, I hadn't a single franc, centime, peseta or penny. I was a man, without means, without direction, without a home, without affection, a man alone. I came to myself sitting on the steps of the cathedral as dawn began to lighten the streets an hour later. At least we had met, I told myself. To have loved and lost is better than never to have loved. I had not lost her entirely, of course, for nothing is ever lost in that way, except life itself. I began to walk north on the parish road, but I was tired and sat down on an upturned cart in a small market square. I heard light, uneven footsteps from a dusty side street. Quite suddenly there was someone there, shuffling towards me, slowly, with tired dignity, leaning on his stick. There was something achingly familiar about him as he crossed in front of me, staring unseeingly at the pavement. And then he was past, was turning the corner, and in a minute gone, the streets as deserted and silent as before. I wondered whether my eyes were playing tricks. But we are all, Diana, the fossils, her wicked uncle, even me, just assumptions of one sort or another which you, dear listener, have to make. Ghosts was read by Andrew Murray Scott and produced by Telling You Stories. If you enjoyed the story, you can listen to more story podcasts by this author or visit his website or author page on Amazon.com to find out more about his published books. Thank you for listening.